0: Chanting, uproot the system, tens of thousands of people marched in Glasgow and all over the world over the weekend, demanding the transformation of the world economy to combat the climate crisis. We also discussed developments with the social program budget, the trial of the killers of Ahmed Arbery, and the latest on the Iran nuclear deal.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity.
0: Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's November 9th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for joining us. As a programming note, Richard Wolf is traveling and will be out tomorrow, so no show tomorrow, but we'll be back on Thursday. Brian, there are tens of thousands of people marching in Glasgow, as I mentioned in the introduction, and but all over the world. What's going on?
1: Indeed. This is the movement about perhaps the biggest existential threat facing society, facing human beings, facing all living things. That is, of course, climate catastrophe. We pretty much all know where we're headed. Corporate America knew where we were headed before the rest of us knew. Exxon, before it was ExxonMobil, was doing research, Walter, you know, 50 years ago. That, and they knew categorically that the use of fossil fuels, like oil, like natural gas, like coal, but especially oil, and of course, Exxon was in oil, that it was causing global warming. Well, here we are. Climate catastrophe is not in the future. Climate catastrophe is right now for huge parts of the population of the planet. And people are chanting, one, uproot the system, meaning recognizing that the problem isn't we litter too much or that there's a a problem with this or that corporation. It is the system. And the system has a name and the system is capitalism. I see some of the other banners. I was looking at the Empire Files. They have a team there, Abby Martin and Mike Preisner. They're there covering the demonstrations. Here's a group called Climate Justice Alliance that, you know, Empire Files tweeted their banner. US militarism, number one polluter, killer, colonizer. That's the slogan. Number one polluter, killer, and colonizer. And the slogan on the banner is no war, no warming. Again, it's an involving mass movement. It's people in the streets today in Scotland and yesterday. They're also in the streets in Washington, D.C. Esther has been covering those really heroic protests by Indigenous leaders and others who are, you know, working with the Indigenous communities against Line 3. Again, very little media coverage in the United States, mass media coverage, at least for the earlier demos, But this is an anti-capitalist movement, and it has to be anti-capitalist.
2: Yeah, I think the protesters in Glasgow are are chanting that for very good reason, because the only thing that this system cares about, the one thing that the capitalist system prioritizes is profit, not the well-being of the planet, not the well-being of the people, or even the survival of the people or the survival of the planet. And another defining characteristic of capitalism is that it is an expand-or-die system, The profits this quarter better be bigger than the profits last quarter. And if they're not, then you'll be swallowed up by your competitors. So every capitalist enterprise, every major capitalist corporation that's responsible for the vast majority of the world's carbon emissions, they're all wondering, how is our business, how is our profit margin going to get bigger from one day to the next? And so, If it costs money, if it impedes on their profits to transition to renewable energy, if it impedes on their profits to reorganize supply chains such that they are less energy intensive, they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it unless they're compelled to do so. But clearly the governments of the world, which have known about this problem for decades and decades, the capitalist governments at least, show no intention whatsoever of forcing them to do it. And so those governments have to go as well. They too must be uprooted. Esther, you've been covering the demonstrations
1: in Washington, D.C., the Line 3. Here we are in Scotland, in Europe. I mean, it's truly a global movement, mainly young people, but not exclusively young people. And undoubtedly, given the fact that communities are already being devastated, people are being affected by rising sea levels, of course, massive pollution. It's not just global warming. It's also pollution, the poisoning of our environment, the poisoning of our air and our lakes our rivers, a global movement. Anyway, when you see what's happening in Scotland, what's your take?
3: Well, I have two major takeaways from COP26 so far. And the first one is that as you all have been discussing that the power and the push for true change there is in the streets. It's not inside the meeting of the UN conference of parties. And just like there was a very important and powerful march here and actions here by indigenous people, there have been a series of really powerful street actions there. Last week we covered on, on the ground, the people out drawing those links that you just talked about between the U.S. military militarization wars and Pollution and pointing out that yes, the U.S. military is the largest single polluter on the planet in terms of oil, in terms of the release of all these toxins onto the land. You know, a lot of people will remember Agent Orange in Vietnam, or even the use of depleted uranium in. Iraq, to the extent that women in Fallujah and surrounding areas can't even have children. They've been advised by their doctors to not even have children. So that was a very important march. On Friday, there was a march by young people called the Fridays for Future. And drawing those same linkages between the environmental movement, the climate movement, the labor movement, and the environmental justice movement, the peace movement— And that's very important. There's a strike going on right now in Glasgow of like sanitation workers. And they were drawing the links between that labor struggle and what they were talking about in terms of the climate. And then on Saturday was this huge march where you're talking about more than 100,000 people filling the streets of Glasgow and also... In capitals across the world, people marching for these same issues and drawing the links, as you all mentioned, between not only capitalism and the survival of humanity and the health of the planet, but also this history of colonialism and imperialism and how these this development has led to where we are right now. The other big story is this total abdication of responsibility of leaders of these capitalist countries for the radical changes that are definitely needed to make the changes needed right now. So on Monday, the first draft of the final decision text for the climate summit came out. And so some environmental groups got a hold of it. And apparently it fails to even mention phasing out coal, gas and oil. So this is really amazing, right? Wow. <laughs> so we see that what's happening in the inside the summit is not anything of consequence that is meeting the emergency that we have right now. And the other thing is that another study was done by a coalition of watchdog groups, and they estimated that there are more fossil fuel industry representatives at COP26 than officials from any single country. And definitely more than the countries that are most impacted by climate change. And so this is a coalition led by Global Witness. And they published this analysis saying that there were 503 fossil fuel lobbyists at this summit in Glasgow, Scotland. And that means they say that the oil and gas industry the principal driver of the crisis, right, has a bigger delegation than Brazil, for example, which has the largest national presence at COP26 with 479 representatives. So, you know, we have the power of what's happening on the streets. We have the, the power of what's happening inside. But what's happening inside is being driven by these same corporate interests that's gotten us into this crisis.
1: So, quote, we're excited to show up at COP26 because America is back in a leadership position on climate in a way that will be broadly welcomed. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters Thursday, well, Joe Biden flew in a private jet there, right? Which That's a,
0: uses a lot of jet fuel, I hear.
1: I've heard that as well. And he then drove to the summit in an 85 car caravan. Because, of course, when the president of the United States goes anywhere, you need that.
0: Minimum 85, I'd say.
1: And remember last week we talked about the insipid media coverage, the headlines of the capitalist newspapers, like the New York Times said, Biden says the U.S. is ready to lead the planet on climate change. When in fact, Biden eliminated from his own bill the provisions that would mitigate slightly carbon emissions in the United States by, in fact, incentivizing utility companies to use something other than fossil fuels uh, by the year 2030. He took that out because he was meeting with Joe Manchin. He's not willing to lead anything. He can't lead the globe because he can't lead the United States. And in fact, continuing to capitulate. I mean, when you hear those numbers that Esther mentioned about how many lobbyists from Big oil and big coal. I mean, in a way, we shouldn't even call them big oil. They're just the capitalist class right. that happens to own oil companies. Some other capitalists own pharmaceutical companies. Some other capitalists sell clothes.
0: And they're probably all on each other's boards and making you know millions yeah, of dollars doing interlocking that. interlocking
1: directorates. And they're all the capitalists who, they're not big pharma. They're not any kind of pharma. They're just jacking up prices to sell us things at ripoff prices so they can make extra profits. And they're continuing to produce more oil. And Biden, by the way, insisted that they produce more oil. Remember that? That came a month ago. He demanded from oil producers that they step it up. So, this idea that the governments or these COP26 conferences are going to do anything no, they're not. Carbon emissions are growing right now, the use of fossil fuels is growing. And the United States, instead of doing its part, because, of course, for so long, the United States was the biggest carbon emission emitter, and also because the United States, with its military, is the single biggest contributor to climate change. And because the United States is the center of world capitalism, and as we learned last week in that study that was time to coincide with the beginning of this summit, there are 100 corporations, those are the capitalists again, 100 capitalist companies that are responsible for 71% of carbon emissions on the planet Earth.
0: Mm. I mean, you know, you talk about these headlines. New York Times has a headline. Can Glasgow deliver on a global climate deal? Well, in another article, the New York Times writes, I think there's a protester who answers that question very aptly. This is Belle Byrne, a retired healthcare worker from Northern England. And she said, quote, they haven't gone far enough. They've agreed to a lot of this stuff before. Why would we believe it's going to be different this time? And I think that's exactly right. I mean, these deals aren't binding. They're done in these big approximates. And I mean, this is such a good example of Biden making these promises at these conferences, but can't and won't deliver, you know, even the most basic of packages here in the United States. And that's only to talk about the small things that he was even promising to deliver in the first place. We need to be promising more and also doing more. Another protester, Stuart Graham, a trade union official in Glasgow, And a member of the COP26 coalition that has been organizing all these protests, I think, has a really great point. Also in this New York Times article, quote, it's critical that we have a civil society with a powerful voice to hold these leaders to account, he said. I mean, I think that's the only way this is going to happen. Clearly, world leaders on their own are not doing this.
2: Yeah, only struggle can make them do it. Only struggle can make them do it because those world leaders of the capitalist countries, which control the vast majority of the world's economy, are fundamentally beholden to those same capitalists. I mean, Joe Manchin's True constituents are the oil and gas capitalists, the pharmaceutical capitalists, the big banks that finance it all. It's not the people of West Virginia. If his true constituents were the people of West Virginia, who would be taking dramatic action on this because of things like flooding in West Virginia that really devastates working class people? You know, he would be supporting lower drug prices, he would be supporting free pharmaceuticals, he would be doing so many more things to make working people's lives livable. But he's not. He's doing quite the opposite. And in fact, he is essentially a coal industry capitalist himself. Mm. So, right. I mean, the governments exist to protect those profits, Sometimes they have to make the corporations dial it back just a little bit, just to keep up appearances for political purposes. But in terms of taking the type of completely transformative action that's necessary, which by the way, would require centralized planning across the entire global economy to rationalize the use of resources and eliminate the enormous waste that's endemic in capitalist international economics, that would require the end of the capitalist system. Nothing less is going to do it, especially at this late date when the climate crisis has already progressed so far.
3: Well, one thing... I'm thinking about is just the fact that it will take mass action, but it seems to me it also takes mass civil disobedience and the willingness to put our bodies on the line, you know, for what the indigenous people call the next seven generations. And we can see how people were treated at Standing Rock, how people are being treated even now up till today at Line 3 protests, that corporate Interests will utilize the state to bring violence, to arrest people, to injure people, to even kill people. And Brian, I'm thinking about the million strong that demonstrated in advance of the Iraq war. And still, these capitalists went to war in Iraq and they went to destroy that country and murder, you know, upwards of a million people and, you know, destroy their infrastructure, ancient artifacts. just the whole ancient civilization that was centered there. So just as a veteran activist, you know, what kinds of mass action, in addition to just marching, do we have to have now? Because it seems to me, based on the Iraq war, that these capitalists don't care. You know, they'll send Colin Powell to the U.N. to lie, to say that, you know, they have weapons of mass destruction. They're in that COP26, rolling deep into COP26 more than any other country represented to still have the right to poison us and to kill the planet.
1: Well, I think you're right that the tactics have to comport with the nature of the emergency. We are in an emergency situation. You know, there's something called a necessity defense, meaning you might be breaking the law, but you're breaking the law because the necessity of the moment, the necessity of the situation requires something to happen, even going above or against the existing laws. So right now, for instance... Embridge, the Canadian company, is building the pipeline, Line 3. It's already leaking, and they're going to bring large amounts of oil through indigenous people's lands and the lands of other people in the state of Minnesota, through the headwaters of the Mississippi. Now, it's oil that we don't need. In fact, it's oil that should remain in the ground. But the pipeline belongs to Embridge. Embridge has the license. They have the contract. It's their pipeline, right? So the indigenous people who live there or the activists who want to have a a future and stop these kind of pipelines, they're violating the law by trying to do something that would help them survive, but break the law. So if the laws are for the capitalist energy companies, and those laws are requiring the human species to become extinct or society as we know it to end, then if people break the law they're doing it because they need to break the law it's a necessity defense and i think right now the the logic the rationale the justification for civil disobedience on a massive scale exists i would say this also about the about the wars like the iraq war you know yes we had millions of people demonstrating we couldn't stop the war before it started ultimately the us had to pull back Out of Iraq and Afghanistan because the people in Iraq had such a severe resistance that they drove the U.S. out. Same in Afghanistan. I watched the movie, again, Hearts and Minds. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's about the Vietnam War. It's a hard to watch movie. It's a documentary with no narration. All the people who are in the film, in the documentary, their own testimony sort of tells the story. So they're talking to people in Vietnam. They're talking to U.S. soldiers. You see U.S. soldiers, for instance, in one scene. It's, it's so hard to watch, really. One scene where these U.S. soldiers are with women who are prostitutes in Saigon, what is now Ho Chi Minh City, after liberation. And then the next scene, and it shows that they're just really buying these women. And the next scene shows the soldiers going out and burning down the huts you know, setting on fire the huts of the villagers nearby. And you just, you know, this this awful tragedy and disgusting injustice. But then at the end, the soldiers, not necessarily these soldiers, but soldiers in general, they start to turn against the war. The soldiers who are the workers of the war start to say, no, we're not going to keep fighting. And one of the reasons why the U.S. war in Vietnam ended is that those soldiers said no. The workers said no. The workers, in a way, went on strike. We need the soldiers who are the workers in uniform to go on strike. We need the oil workers and the coal workers and the energy workers to have a common bond with the environmental movement. Workers generally, even outside the energy companies, need to say, no, we're not going to keep allowing the capitalists to do this to our lives and to our society. Like, the kind of civil disobedience which is really impactful is not the one-day civil disobedience, although that can be impactful. It's when consciousness rises to a level where enough people in existing society say, no, we're not going to go along with the way things were. We're going to demand real change. And the people, when they have that kind of consciousness, as happened, say, during the civil rights movement, it made the old existing way of doing things no longer doable. And that's when change happens. And I think what we have to do is use every tactic. It could be civil disobedience, mass marches. It could be lobbying. It could be writing letters to your editor. But the most important thing is for millions and tens of millions of people to become active to say we have to stop this. And when we talk about uprooting the system... Well, what does that mean? We have to uproot the system, but we need some system. The system we need is the socialist system, the system that seizes control over oil, gas, and coal companies, says we're not going to continue to use fossil fuels. We're going to take those companies and and those labor forces and convert them to doing something society needs rather than something that will destroy society. It's this holistic approach towards movement building using a multiple number of tactics, but knowing where we're going. We want to uproot the system, create a new system. And that's the next step, I think, is this anti-climate change movement has to not only be anti-capitalist,
2: but pro-socialist. And every people's movement in existence has a huge stake in the success of that anti capitalist climate movement. I mean, if you're a labor organizer, I mean, who do you think is going to pay the price? Who's going to bear the burden of the evisceration of coastal areas? Obviously, that's going to be workers. The capitalist class, the capitalist government is going to do everything they possibly can to make sure that workers either lose their job, have to take huge wage cuts, their conditions are gonna be horrible. Think about the anti-racist movement. I mean, the white supremacist US ruling class is going to do everything they can and are doing everything they can to make sure that oppressed communities are the ones bearing the brunt of climate change. We can go on and on, but clearly every single movement against injustice, every movement for people's rights and dignity has a clear stake in combating the climate crisis, which means ultimately ending the system that's responsible for it and the system that makes it impossible to solve in a present situation.
0: But also... Providing a solution because you can't just say this needs to be anti-capitalist. You can't just say capitalism is the problem. We've said that. There's a lot of people saying that, which is good. Now there's a lot of people saying that. Now that's the big slogan, like you just said, "uproot the system" is the slogan in Glasgow with you know a hundred thousand people. But we have to move past that. We have to start talking about well, what's next? What's after uprooting the system? What do we do after that? And. You know, when you look back at history, when you look at the current moment, like the places that are actually putting people first, the places that have states built by workers, those are socialist systems. That's where the people's needs come first. That's where people are getting fed. That's where people have housing. That's where people have clean water. We have to start fighting for that.
3: I'm also thinking about the need for International solidarity, because I was just listening to a conversation on the radio on Monday about, you know, why should somebody they use the expression in the hood here care about you know, some of these issues around climate or or even the International Tribunal ruling that, you know, the United States has committed genocide against African-Americans and indigenous people. And the question was, you know, why should the average person care about that? It's because we're all interconnected. And one of the things that that I thought was positive coming out of this movement in the streets in Glasgow was the recognition that, you know, we only have one planet, we only have one world. And just like the capitalist countries show that they were unable, that they failed to share vaccines, to share technologies and other types of important medicines during the pandemic, they are failing to uh, not only keep it in the ground right now, but to pay the climate debt the reparations that are due to all the countries who are suffering now because the United States and Europe account for 70% of the historic emissions on the planet. And so in addition to this first draft having nothing to say about you know keeping coal and gas and oil out of the atmosphere now, to keep it in the ground, to keep it wherever it is, it's also failing to make the type of reparations that that are needed for developing countries to make the transition to clean energy, to deal with the mitigation that they have to have. Island nations are disappearing. Their coastlines are fastly eroding. The way that the whole capitalist system, the whole system of imperialism has been set up, many of the emissions of the developing countries have been exported to places like China, have been exported to other places that are now the industrial centers emitting pollution. But it's not as if they aren't emitting this pollution on behalf of U.S. corporations and other capitalist corporations.
2: Yeah. Along along the lines of of what you're talking about, Esther, I wanted to read a quote from the speech given by the president of Bolivia, Luis Arce, at the Glasgow summit. He said, We perceive that developed countries are simply buying time without any sense of responsibility for humanity. Developed countries are promoting a new world recolonization process that we can call the new carbon colonialism because they are trying to impose their own rules of the game in the climate negotiations to continue feeding the new green capitalist system while pushing developing nations to accept these rules of the game without any other options. I think it's so important that there are leaders in the world, like the president of Bolivia, who, by the way, is from an organization called the Movement for Socialism, who's speaking out against these deep international injustices, because it is true, it's absolutely true that the primary responsibility, the vast majority of the carbon that's emitted, has been emitted by the corporations in the imperialist world, who grew rich, who developed, industrialized, and used up all of the Earth's capacity to deal with carbon, to carry carbon. And so they can't simply turn around after that process is completed and say to the rest of the world, the vast majority of humanity, sorry, you just have to stay poor forever. I mean, that's what he's talking about, Luis Arce, the president of Bolivia, when he refers to the new carbon colonialism. And I think that the workers and oppressed people in those rich countries who are not rich themselves have everything to gain by uniting with the people all around the world who are demanding this.
1: You know, the impact on the so-called third world has been so devastating. When you think about it, the capitalist countries, the handful of capitalist countries who became the colonialists and the dominant imperialists, this handful of countries, the countries who, say, in 1884 met in Berlin and divided the entire African continent amongst themselves. Britain would get this country. France would get this country. Portugal would get these countries. You name it, right? All of Africa divided up. Within 18 years, all self-governance in Africa disappeared with the exception of Ethiopia between 1884 and 1902. Then they extracted all of the mineral resources from these countries, and they became ever richer, just as they did from the importation of African people as enslaved people, as the working class in North America, an enslaved part of the working class, and a very big part of the working class. Now, these same companies are saying, well, we have to you know, start to limit emissions, and so we all are in this together. We're all in the same boat. Well, no, the whole world is not in the same boat. Some people had their boats sunk by other parts of the world. As Walter Rodney said, Europe underdeveloped Africa. It wasn't always underdeveloped. And now I'm looking at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Now, this goes back to what the point that Esther was making and that you were making, Walter, that as part of this movement, it has to be against fossil fuels That means it has to be against the system. We have to uproot the system, which means to uproot capitalism, and we need to have an alternative solution. Make these companies public property and stop the use of fossil fuels. That's called socialism. But as we do it, we have to do it in the spirit of anti-imperialist internationalism and international solidarity. So this panel, the IPCC, predicts that global warming will worsen human health conditions, especially in tropical regions. In places like Africa, an increase in temperature signifies an increase in mosquito populations, thus escalating the risk of malaria, dengue, and other insect-borne infections. Other regions are also affected. And then the IPCC goes through all of the areas of the world that are suffering the most already. From global warming or climate change. And of course, it's the same countries that were colonized, that were victimized by imperialism, meaning monopoly capitalism, which are now suffering the most as a result of global warming. So we have to also be a movement of international solidarity. It can't be like some sort of wonky, you know, policy driven orientation for the movement. It has to be militant. It has to engage in civil disobedience. It has to bring in millions of people. It has to educate populations. It has to be anti-capitalist, pro-socialist, and it has to be based on international solidarity.
3: I think that, you know, the prime minister of Barbados, Mia Amor Motley, gave probably one of the most like consequential or common sense type of speeches during the first week of the climate summit where she's talking about just the hypocrisy of the world capitalist system, really, in terms of what they've spent money on and what they're refusing to spend money on now in this emergency. I think we have a clip.
4: The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. 25 trillion of that 9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that 25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition or the transition of how we eat, or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us. I say to you today in Glasgow, that an annual increase in the SDRs of $500 billion a year for 20 years, put in a trust to finance the transition, is the real gap, Secretary General, that we need to close not the 50 billion being proposed for adaptation and if 500 billion songs big to you guess what it is just two percent of the 25 trillion this is the sword we need to wield our excitement one hour into this event is far less than it was six months ago leading up to this event can we with those voices And these speeches from Sir David and others find it within ourselves to get the resolve to bring Glasgow back on track or do we leave today believing that it was a failure before it starts our world my friends stands at a fork in the road one no less significant than when the United Nations was formed in 1945 but then The majority of our countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist 100 years from now. And if our existence is to mean anything, then we must act in the interests of all of our people who are dependent on us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction.
3: So that was Barbados Prime Minister Mia Moore Motley giving one of the more sensible and just true speeches during the first week of the climate summit, really laying out what these capitalist countries should do, but what they're failing to do.
1: Indeed. And before we go on to our next story, I just want to go back to, again, what it means to be fighting on this issue. Some people think, well... You know, the environmental movement is basically a middle-class movement. It's a movement of the privileged. Well, first of all, that's just not true. We know it's indigenous people in North America who are taking the lead. Also, there's an attempt to divide people and divide movements when what we should be doing is saying, look, we really are all in this together. But ultimately, the environmental movement will be a working-class movement. It's already a working-class movement, and it's already largely rooted in the developing world, the so-called third world. But the capitalist media in the West just doesn't cover it. But just think about what the impacts are already. Again, going back to that IPCC report from the UN, global warming is creating heat waves, prolonged periods of abnormally high temperatures that have serious health effects on vulnerable populations poor people, elderly people, very young people, and of course, sick people. Here's from that report, the loss of agricultural productivity. It's resulting in huge droughts, worsening the living conditions of masses of people in Africa. The IPCC report estimates that in the coming years, as many as 250 million more people in Africa will be without adequate water and facing massive food shortages as crop productivity declines by about 50%. Crop productivity declining by 50%. And then, of course, asthma and other respiratory diseases. People suffering from heart problems are more vulnerable to increased temperatures, especially those already living in very warm areas, as their cardiovascular system must work harder to keep their body cool. Anyway, when you go through all of the interconnected impacts of global warming, you can see that this is impacting first and foremost the colonized or semi-colonized part of the world. Again, this has to be a socialist movement, a working class movement, a movement that's global in character. And the fact of the matter is we can win. This does not have to be. God did not mandate that we commit suicide as a species. There's nothing in any religious text, perhaps some of the apocalyptic, parts of the Bible you can point to, but let's put those to the side for the moment and assume that this is really not only man-made, but made by a particular part of man, meaning a particular part of society, the capitalist class. Anyway, Walter, we talked about or mentioned the infrastructure program that was supposed to be passed in concert with the Build Back Better program, meaning the human infrastructure, all of the social spending plans that were supposed to Improve the lives of or provide relief for the lives of working class families in the United States. Well, Biden took out the climate mitigation provisions in that bill. Also, the people in Congress, the Progressive Caucus, said that they weren't going to support the infrastructure bill, which is basically, let's face it, the so-called public-private partnership whereby the government incentivizes and subsidizes capitalist corporations to build bridges and roads and trains and railroad tracks. They weren't going to say yes to that without the Build Back Better provisions. The same ones that Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and these other evil extremist capitalists. Pigs have insisted couldn't be passed, but yet, Walter, the infrastructure bill passed.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's just kind of sad at this point, but it's an outcome foretold in the sense that because they did not engage the people, because they did not try to put huge amounts of pressure on those two disgusting right-wing Democrats and like-minded right-wing Democrats in the House of Representatives, they have all the leverage. And so, right, what happened is that the social program budget was passed in the House, they reinserted four weeks of paid family leave, which is down from 12 weeks already, and sent it back to the Senate. But there, Joe Manchin still has the power, and Joe Biden has shown that he would capitulate to Joe Manchin, that he would have the power to essentially say, no, I'm not going to vote for this unless you take that extremely necessary, important provision out of it. And so essentially, it's still a form of deadlock, even though they took this symbolic vote in the House of Representatives. And so the rest of the Democratic Party then gave up all of their leverage that they have against these right wings. The the members of the squad voted no on the infrastructure bill. That's right. So six Democrats did vote no on the quote unquote bipartisan infrastructure bill. They're Jamal Bowman, Cori Bush, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. It's very good that they voted no. At least they were willing to stand up. But they were joined by a number of Republicans who were actually attacked by members of their own party you know, for voting for a quote unquote socialism. Yeah. How
1: many Republicans voted for it? That's why the
2: thing passed minus the six members of the, the squad. That's right. 13 House Republicans voted in favor of this. And mind you, this is a bill that would essentially just give subsidies to corporations to build stuff. But even still only 13 republicans would vote in favor of it.
1: Republicans as Walter mentioned those republicans are now being targeted by all of the the Trump, you know, Republican Party for they have to be destroyed now because they voted for a conservative pro-capitalist bill to build bridges and railways and new roads. Very modest, but because they voted with the Democrats they're being targeted for political annihilation, showing how extreme the right wing, and how absurd and bizarre the right wing is, which now dominates, completely dominates the Republican Party. You can't but be reminded of the fact that when President Barack Obama had control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and he was a popular president, they had 59 Democrats in the Senate. This was in 2009. He could do whatever he wanted to do. The Democrats could do whatever they wanted to do. And they did do whatever they wanted to do, which was to pass... Mitt Romney's health care plan, not Medicare for all, not improved Medicare for all, not single payer. They passed this completely Republican bill, which said everyone must get health care with a private capitalist insurance company. And then the Republicans went into like overdrive to saying this was communism. It was Mitt Romney's plan when he was the governor of Massachusetts, but suddenly it was communism because it was Barack Obama. And they started showing up at town hall meetings in 2009 and 10 with guns. That's when the Tea Party movement was born. And now you have 13 Republicans being targeted for political annihilation because they voted to build some bridges and roads in concert with capitalist companies. Amazing.
0: Yeah, it's especially amazing when you think about like the 13 that voted essentially for this giveaway to corporations like They're the ones doing the bidding of the corporations, which is traditionally something that the Republican Party is very, very, you know, fine with doing. It's just so backwards. Like so Madison Cawthorn, a Republican representative from North Carolina, he said he tweeted on Saturday. There's a lot of Democrats who call themselves Republicans in the U.S. House, which I find really, really interesting. Lauren Boebert of Colorado said in a tweet quote, these fraudulent rhinos should be penalized for advertising themselves as Republicans but governing as Democrats. And then Representative Matt Gates of Florida, quote, I can't believe Republicans just gave the Democrats their socialism bill. Like this is a giveaway to corporations like the country has or should have the infrastructure to be able to pay people directly to go build bridges.
1: According to whatever that agency as Walter, we used to have them on our old radio show, the ones who they represent the engineers and construction engineers in America. According to their report, there are 70,000 bridges that are falling down in America in need of repair. So you pass this mild bill to repair some of them and not really the government just involved in government spending, but partly subsidizing capitalist corporations, but to these Republican
2: like fascistic forces This is communism. It's so extreme. It's so ridiculous. And it also highlights a key political difference, I think, between the right wing and the liberal wing of the U.S. ruling class. You know, the Republicans clearly have no problem disciplining their members. I mean, they they got the vast majority of their caucus to unite around a position that, as we've been saying, is completely ridiculous. I mean, like another planet, different dimension, ridiculous. And that's because those other Republican Party members who are perhaps not, you know, themselves part of this far right fascistic wing, they're under a tremendous amount of pressure from the far right.
0: Marjorie Taylor Greene, quote, these are the 13, quote unquote, Republicans who handed over their voting cards to Nancy Pelosi to pass Joe Biden's communist takeover of America via so-called infrastructure. And then she tweets out all the last names of the Republicans who voted for it, along with their phone numbers.
1: Yeah. And maybe some burning crosses. You know, in Europe, the Democratic Party would be a center right party, a a party of the right. But in the United States, the politics of the capitalist parties is so right wing. Well, remember our friend Randy Credico, the comedian who said there's a very fine line between the right, the far right and the Third Reich. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's America. And, you know, also Huey Long, the populist politician from Louisiana said, when fascism comes to the United States, it will be wrapped in the American flag. And sure enough, I mean, there is this rising tide of fascistic activity. And Esther has been on the case talking about how people in small town America especially or smaller town America at school board meetings, they're they're giving up their positions at school boards because they're facing death threats, people showing up with guns, you know, that kind of thing. But there is one important thing to remember about all this. 83% of the population of the United States lives in urban areas, meaning in the cities. But because of the way the U.S. system of governance is organized and the way politics is reported on in the media, there's this disproportionate influence by smaller town or semi-rural or rural America. But in fact, when the Vast part of the population that lives in cities galvanizes into a political movement. The right wing won't seem so big and bad. And I think I think that's very very important to remember.
0: You can remember that actually when you look at cases like Ahmed Arbery. Ahmed Arbery was a young black man who was out for a run in February 2020, and Gregory McMichael, his son Travis McMichael, and their neighbor William Bryan chased after him, drove after him in their truck. And gunned him down because he was a black man running in a neighborhood. And people have been protesting about that all over the country. All over the country in huge numbers. I mean, his name was part of the uprising last year. There's some new information in his case, though. So people may have seen this, but only one black juror last week was picked out of a 12-man jury.
1: This was for the murder trial of the people who killed him.
0: This is for the murder trial for the people who murdered Ahmed Arbery. Again, Gregory McMichael, his son, and their neighbor. This was a family affair. One black juror was picked with 11 white jurors to hear the murder trial of these three men. And now you might be thinking, well, maybe this was an all-white area. Well, no, 27% of the area was black residents. And the jury pool matched that. The jury pool was a quarter black. The jury pool was 25% black. They picked one juror who was black, which was only 8% of the jury. Again, 27 percent black residents in the county. And the way that they did this is a way that happens fairly consistently where, you know, whichever lawyers are the ones trying to exclude black jurors. In this case, it's the defense, the people who are trying to defend the white supremacist racist who killed Mr. Arbery. The defense included questions of the potential jurors, like whether they considered the Confederate battle flag a racist symbol And it was questions like these that were used to eliminate possible jurors, eliminate black jurors. so,
1: so So the judge allowed this to be a legitimate question.
0: The judge allowed this to be a question that was asked. He said, oh, well, don't spend too much time on these sorts of questions of race. But they were asked about that. They were asked about their participation in, quote unquote, social justice demonstrations. They were asked about their support for Black Lives Matter. And they were asked about their personal histories with racial discrimination. So you're a black person walking in in Georgia to be a possible juror. And if you say, yes, I've been discriminated against, all of a sudden you can't serve on a jury?
1: Yeah, so here's the thing. These are called voir dire questions, right? The questions for jury qualification or null or disqualification. So, and the judge allowed this question, why wouldn't you kind of turn that around and say, because they they were asked, have you ever been to a Black Lives Matter protest? That would show that you had bias. Why wouldn't the question be turned on its head? Like, if you haven't been to a Black Lives Matter protest, then that would show that you're biased. Or if you thought that the Confederate flag wasn't racist, that would be an indication of bias.
0: Right, Brian. I mean, that flag was never the flag of this country. Of course it's racist. The defense struck 11 black jurors. The racists representing the racists who killed Mr. Arbery struck 11 black jurors. And again, some of them were struck for reasons like, well, they were discriminated against one time.
1: Esther, this was an old style lynching and the prosecutors weren't going to arrest these people. In fact, they were friends with the killers. And as a consequence, they were going to let them go. Just like the killers of Emmett Till, who they were acquitted by an all white jury. You know, this is just uh, old style lynching.
3: To me, it's very connected to some of the discussions that we've had around critical race theory. And I think I pointed out to us in advance of this show about how this one essay I saw that started with the line, it's as if the last 400 years didn't happen. And so we're living in this time when there's this real pushback against history and facts and not only historical facts, but present day facts What I hear when I hear about this jury selection in Georgia, it's more of the same. It's this failure to recognize facts and wanting Black people to fit into a a historical narrative. Of course, Black people experience discrimination in Georgia. Of course, the Confederate flag is a racist symbol. But you recognizing that, somehow makes you racist or makes you biased so we're living in a real upside down time when it's not only dangerous to to tell the truth about history but it's almost like dangerous to like acknowledge your reality you're like living waking reality as a black person
1: yeah you know again we have to look at all of this in a dialectical way too because because it's important to be living in the moment and at the same time to be able to transcend the moment. Like the cover up of Ahmed Arbery's murder by the prosecution, but it finally came out when those videos came out, those disgusting videos, they were hunting him down because while he was running, he stopped and looked at a house that was under construction. So the white racist killers said, oh, he's trying to break in. Why? He's a black man who's running past a construction site and stopped and looked at it. And then the prosecutors in that area were letting them go. But then when the George Floyd killing happened and people went into the streets in Minneapolis and the uprising continued, Ahmed Arbery's case fueled that flame of resistance. You know, and I'm just thinking back, I mentioned Emmett Till. You know, Emmett Till was 13 years old. He was from the north. He was visiting Mississippi In 1955, somebody in a store said that he was talking to a a 21-year-old white woman. He's 13, and that he either said something to her or whatever. But lynchers came and found him, and they tortured him to death. And his body was unrecognizable almost. And his mother came to Mississippi and insisted that he be buried in an open coffin. And so instead of it being a closed coffin, you could see this child's mutilated body. And then the jury was picked in September of 1955, and it was an all-white jury, and they were acquitted. Of course they were acquitted. It was Mississippi. But then two months later, Rosa Parks in nearby Alabama didn't give up her seat to a white man. You know, that was in December 1955. And that started the Montgomery bus boycott, which in fact led to the civil rights revolution in the United States. All of that is combined. All of this is cause and effect, and each effect is a cause, and then each cause in turn has a ripple effect. So we are engaged right now in a brutal but very long-standing battle against capitalism and racism and all of its white supremacist institutions. And we have to recognize it for what it is. This is all part of this big struggle.
2: That's right. I mean, we can look back to the conviction of Derek Chauvin last year as a consequence of the historic uprising against racism that brought 20 million people into the streets in the United States and became an international phenomenon. I mean, everything is set up. The way the system is structured to protect police officers and and the murderers of Ahmad Arbery were functioning as police officers in this case, even if they weren't on duty. Everything about the system is set up to protect these types of racist murderers. But the people's militant struggle, if it's massive enough, if it threatens the system enough, it's able to secure justice sometimes, sometimes. But then it begs the question, well, Why is it necessary? Why is it necessary for 20 million people to go into the streets for many weeks at a time and during terrible repression? Why is it necessary to do that to win justice, a semblance of justice, you know, about a year later? Shouldn't this system end and shouldn't it be replaced by a system that has justice as a matter of course built into it?
0: Right. I mean, the defense argued that Arbery's race had no bearing on the case. That was part of their argument. His race was incidental. They also try to convince the judge that the jurors who were struck, who weren't put on the jury, that their race was incidental. I mean, only in a deeply unjust system in this, you know, U.S. racist capitalist system can that be true with the context of this country. I mean,
1: they're playing with fire, though. If they, they are,
0: there's already protests going on. If
1: this ends up, Esther, with an acquittal, under these circumstances, and given the historic, you know, lily white juries to acquit white people of killing black people, you know, I think they're playing with fire.
3: Yeah, they're playing with fire. But what I'm struck by is the fact that they're playing with fire, but the right and the far right, including the corporate media, is stoking that fire as well. And when you look at how Even though 20 million people went into the streets last year in terms of largely peaceful protests, the ability of particularly the far right, right wing media to spin that righteous uprising into and have that labeled as a riot, you know, a year later Or have those people labeled as rioters and looters and arsonists, as the judge said in Kenosha, where Kyle Rittenhouse murdered two protesters. You know, I'm just I am watching how our righteous uprisings are allowed to be turned into something else, spun into something else by corporate media, particularly the right wing corporate media and how the so-called liberals don't stand up for the movement. They're afraid of the right, and that gives more power to these people who we have to fight against. And we can't rely on them to fight with us because You know, they won't even stand up and say, no, you're incorrect. No, these people were standing up for human rights because no one should be murdered by police. No, you're wrong. These people were standing up for justice. And, you know, when you look at the win by Glenn Youngkin as the new governor elect of Virginia, he was able to successfully dog whistle his way into the governorship by using this attack on so-called critical race theory when it was really not that at all. He managed to Convince Virginia voters that public schools were making young white children feel bad about being white, making them feel like they were oppressors because they were white and not really wanting to deal with the kind of history that you're talking about right now. And not just the history, but the current events that are happening right now to people like Ahmad Arbery, to people like George Floyd, which people rose up to protest last year.
1: You know, because you mentioned Virginia. I want to just say one part of this irony, speaking of the so-called liberals. Let's talk about James Carville, for instance, the Democratic Party strategist. Now, he's a Clintonite, so the right wing would consider him a liberal, maybe a communist. But in fact, James Carville is really part of the what the media calls the moderate wing, what we call the extremist wing of the Democratic Party, extremely tied to Wall Street and all of the reactionary. Right, I
3: heard what he said. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So he blamed the loss of McAuliffe in Virginia in the governor's race on, quote, stupid wokeness, stupid wokeness, and basically blaming the liberals for McAuliffe's loss in Virginia. Well, no, I want to just say a word or two about this. That is ridiculous. That is bizarre, absurd, ridiculous, and an all-out lie, but again, repeated in the media. McAuliffe was not woke, so-called, whatever that means now. Again, as Ocasio-Cortez put out, who says this anymore except just old people? But you know, the problem in Virginia was not the liberals or the squad, It was the fact that the Democratic Party turned its back on Joe Biden's own program to, quote, build back better. Etc., to have a social policy plan. They torpedoed their own plan. They moved significantly to the right. They moved in the direction of the Clintonite wing of the Democratic Party. And McAuliffe, by the way, is a Clintonite. He's the epitome of the Clintonites. I mean,
0: he was literally the fundraiser for her and the party for years. Literally the fundraiser. And nobody gives a
1: damn about McAuliffe, like they couldn't stand Hillary Clinton. And then whenever this wing of the Democratic Party loses, because Guess what? Young people weren't excited about McAuliffe. Black people weren't excited about McAuliffe. When they lose, then they turn around and blame somebody else. Hillary Clinton blamed Bernie. Then she blamed the Russians. I mean, she blamed everybody except herself and except the Democratic Party with this corporate establishment. See, this is why we are in a battle for ideas. The uprising that happened last year, by the way, Walter, was not 20 million, it was 35 million people, according to most of the estimates, half of those people participated in protests for the very first time. We were all there, we were in the streets, we felt the energy, it was black and white and Latino and Asian American and native, you know, all parts of American society, the tapestry was present and people were feeling the power. But when the movement recedes, the right wing tries to fill the vacuum, tries to demonize the movement, caricature the movement, stereotype the movement as Esther says, and for a moment, That becomes the dominating message, and then you kind of feel a little bit defeated, perhaps. But let's not forget what actually was achieved. The political climate was shifted and changed. Lots of things happened, but it's not a done battle. This battle is going to keep going and going and going. So we have to learn the lessons. We have to fight the false caricaturing of what happened before, but recognizing that it's inevitable that it will happen, but we just can't stop. And we have to fight the liars. We have to fight by telling the truth. And we have to fight in the streets, mobilizing the people for the things that people need. If the Democrats wanted to win, they could have done something that would have actually helped working class Republican voters. But they failed to do it because to do that meant taking some of the tax money, some of the monies away from Wall Street corporations who are their real constituency.
0: And if they had wanted to win even more explicitly, I just want to hammer this home like Terry McAuliffe is one of the most political elites of political elites. If you're running against someone who's even remotely populist, even remotely, you know, associated with the working class at all, even though Youngkin isn't really, but he pretends like he is. Right. Why on earth would you run Terry McAuliffe? Why would you run? you know, the guy who appears only in suits, who, you know, meets only with corporations, who's already been governor and didn't do anything. Why would you run that person? I mean, it makes zero sense. And so when you're done and you claim, well, you know, I'm James Carville and you're a part of this elitist party. Of course, that's what you want to claim, that it was, you know, the left that brought you down. But but that's not even the case. The left didn't even run a candidate. I mean, It was, you know, just very clearly when you run an elitist, nobody wants to vote for the elitist. They know, people know that that person does not have them in mind.
2: And I mean, we should remember that they were barely able to beat Donald Trump in 2020. I mean, we were all, you know, watching the election results come in. And I mean, just speaking for myself, there were a couple of times where I was like, oh, wow, Trump might win. It's not impossible that Trump could pull this off. I mean, the fact that after presiding over You know, like one of the most catastrophic four years in recent memory in the United States, the Democrats were barely able to beat that guy. Now, sure, that contest is skewed by the Electoral College, but still, I mean, the Democratic Party keeps making the same mistake over and over And over again. And you know, the one place where they are willing to fight is when it comes to crushing their own internal left wing. I mean, if they ran Bernie Sanders for president in 2016, we wouldn't have had a president Trump in the first place. If they made similar decisions, if they chose not to essentially rig their primary processes to exclude politicians who are not even that radical, but at least put something out there that's appealing to working class people, it, it wouldn't be this way. Well, here's one thing that
1: McAuliffe could have done in the Democrats. Yunkin, Glenn Yunkin, was the senior executive at Carlisle Group, the private equity company. Now, how did he make his money? How did he become so super rich? What is the Carlisle Group? What is this private equity firm? It goes around and it looks at companies and it decides which companies it will destroy and then destroy the company and take a profitable sector of the economy and sell it to another company. So Carlisle Group is just a job destroyer, right? It's Wall Street. They go around destroying companies, even profitable companies, destroying and laying off the workforce and then making extra profit by fees and you know all of those kind of ways that they get by sort of leveraging the company to the one part of the company they decide is profitable.
0: What a parasite.
1: He's a parasite. He's a job killer. Why didn't McAuliffe go after him on that? Instead, McAuliffe said, You supported Donald Trump. You supported Donald Trump. You supported Donald Trump. How is that effective with. And
0: then, then, oh, I'm not a socialist. I'm not a socialist.
1: Yeah. And I'm not a socialist. And how is that effective at all with working class Republican voters who were for Trump, but would have been absolutely against the Carlisle group, destroying all of these factories? Like, why not go after him on the basis that he is. A private equity capitalist destroying jobs
0: because he is too. McAuliffe is too
1: because, because McAuliffe is too, and that's what the problem was. And then for Carville to say it's really AOC's fault rather than taking responsibility. Anyway, we have to be very, very clear on what the real issues and the real problems are. That's why we have this program. This program is actually, you know, bringing a sort of clarity and insight and truth telling that you don't find really in any of the capitalist media. Anyway, Walter, I know time is running short on Thursday. Well, it's our Thursday podcast, and on Breakthrough News, it's going to be our Wednesday night video. It's the real story segment. We're going to have Professor Mohammed Mirandi talking this week about U.S.-Iran relations. It's heating up. Negotiations are starting again about the Iran nuclear arms deal. But at the same time, the aggression against Iran is continuing to mount. That's
2: right. The talks are slated to resume on November 29th. And the only reason that these talks are taking place is because the United States unilaterally tore up the deal, walked out on the deal, which was actually very favorable to the U.S. I mean, Iran gave up a huge amount of its sovereign right to produce nuclear energy for peaceful purposes, in order to get sanctions relief so that the economic warfare that was making life unlivable for their people, they couldn't get food, medicine, essential supplies, you know, a let up on that economic war in exchange for all of these invasive measures that impugn on their sovereign right to produce peaceful nuclear energy. They are now talking to the United States again after Joe Biden was elected. They reinitiated negotiations to resume compliance with the JCPOA. That's the Iran nuclear deal's formal name. And those talks to revive the deal have essentially been dormant for the last five months or maybe a little bit longer than that. Iran had a presidential election in June A candidate, one, Ibrahim Raisi, who's now the president, representing the wing of Iranian politics that essentially says, well, look, of course the United States was going to go back on this. This is what they always do. And it was foolish to think that they would do anything different. And, you know, there seems to be something to that when you just look at the facts of what happened. you know, they paused it. They wanted to show that they were in no rush. They wanted to show that they could hold strong. As well, And so there's been this long pause of the negotiations. It will resume November 29th. If there is not significant progress made, I think it's unlikely that this will ever succeed. And the United States has resorted to all of these bullying imperialist threats, essentially saying, Iran, if you don't capitulate and essentially make the deal even worse for you than it originally was, then we might bomb you or Israel might bomb you and we'll look the other way.
1: Yeah, so we really look forward to our discussion with Mohammed Morandi again. That'll be on Breakthrough News on Wednesday night, at seven p.m. as a as a Breakthrough News YouTube. We do that now with the Real Story every week, and it'll be a podcast as always, eight a.m. Thursday morning. I just want to you know remind everyone why this is so important. The U.S. is imposing and has imposed economic sanctions on Iran ever since. 1979. When? What did the Iranians do to deserve this collective punishment? They overthrew a dictator. They overthrew a government that was a complete 100% absolute monarchist dictatorship, the Shah of Iran, put onto the throne in Iran in 1953 when the previous government, the democratically elected government of Dr. Mohammad Mazagdei, dared to nationalize what was then called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, AIOC, now known as BP or British Petroleum. He dared to nationalize that and said, look, we want to feed Iranians. We want those oil revenues to be used to lift Iran out of poverty. How dare
0: they, Brian? Yeah,
1: how dare they? And, And the New York Times, when Mosek Day was overthrown, had a celebratory editorial, said now all of the nationalist dictators who go berserk with nationalism have a rich lesson to be learned from what happened in Iran. Yeah, that was 1953. So for 26 years, the Iranian people lived under a U.S. imposed dictatorship. You can't get less democratic than having a king. And they lived under that regime. And when they overthrew that regime in a people's revolution, then they were punished with economic sanctions. The same as what's happened to the people of Cuba even though Cuba is a socialist government, the Iranian government's not socialist. The people are being punished for wanting to be free people, to be independent, sovereign people. So we really look forward to having this in-depth interview with Dr. Mohamed Mirandi, a real expert on U.S.-Iranian relations as well. Walter, before we leave, what's happening with the big stories on Liberation News?
2: Yeah, there's several that I want to highlight today. One is very much connected to our theme related to the infrastructure bill it's titled Dealing with the Devil, Musicians Confront Joe Manchin at Kennedy Center Concert. We actually mentioned this on our last in the news roundtable, but at the Kennedy Center, musicians confronted Joe Manchin because of his support for extending child poverty, essentially, because he was against the child tax credit. By the way, Manchin lives on a houseboat.
0: A house yacht.
2: It's a, Yeah, it's
1: a $750,000 000- They call it a houseboat.
0: It's a houseboat.
1: And when he got off the boat, Walter, those protesters were all around him. I mean, yes, Joe Manchin, this is what your future should look like.
3: Mm -hmm. And that's between him going from the boat to the Maserati.
2: And this article is a Liberation News exclusive interview with Carsey Blatton, the musician who confronted Joe Manchin. Another one to highlight here, Columbia University student workers launched second largest strike in the country. The striketober phenomenon is continuing into, I don't know, we'll have to come up with some other name for it in November, but the stirring of the US working class labor movement is still very much alive. Finally, another report out of San Jose. San Jose families rally for immigration reform and economic rights. Another important front of the people's struggle here in the United States. Go to liberationnews.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter at the top. Check back every day for updates.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, are now available every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with partner Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news analysis and history with the support of our listeners.